This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to a special edition of Deep South Dining, a conversation with Chef Sean Brock. He was recently in Jackson to talk about his latest cookbook, South, New Recipes and Explorations. I feel lucky to be able to cook Southern food for a living. It is a gift I'm grateful for every day. Feeding people is a privilege, and I've spent my life observing how food nurtures and connects us. Food is medicine. After all, it can heal the soul, help mend a broken heart, or calm a busy mind. The craft of cooking, specifically cooking a cuisine that is so rich with tradition, has allowed me to see this in action all over the world and experience how deeply food contributes to our culture. Cuisine is our common thread, and it allows us to speak the same language even when we don't. But what is cuisine? I define it as a combination of three important factors. The people cooking the food and the cultural experiences and history they bring to the table, the physical geography of the place where the food is cooked, and the plants and animals that grow there. So you were born and raised in Pound, Virginia. Yeah. You ever heard of Pound, Virginia? Well, I have now. And, <laughs> and if you go and do a search of Pound, Virginia, you find out there's only about a thousand people who live there. I guess it's a coal mining community. Yeah. Uh, and if you uh, go to notable residents, you're listed. No, I'm not. You're listed uh, as a notable <laughs> restaurant. Oh, man, that's amazing. Uh, and <laughs> they might give you the key to the city. And, and oh, let me show wow. you the list of the other people who are are listed as notable residents. Francis Gary Powers, yeah, that he was in England oh, Roberts, too? both of them. Yeah. You too, yeah, yeah. From Pound. And then Glenn Roberts was um he took credit for inventing the jump shot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the wow, You're that's you're crazy. among some notable company. That's crazy. And, and now that you're living in Nashville, do you know Tony Mullins, the singer-songwriter yes. in Nashville? He's from your hometown. I had no idea. Yeah, he's a pretty well-known writer. Yeah, I had no idea. Wow. <laughs> wow. But you actually moved from Pound when you were, what, in, in high school? I went to high school in Abingdon, which is right outside yeah. of Bristol. And so that was where you fell in love with restaurants. Am I right? That, well, that's because there weren't any restaurants in Pound. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a cafe? No. There was, there so were, truly, there, you had to grow everything you ate. The, the, in that town, there was not a place where you could order food and sit down and have someone bring it to you. <laughs> there were only um, like um, drive-ins. There are two really neat drive-ins. Um, I know one of them still there. It's called Robo's, R-O-B-O. And, um, yeah, so we ate what we grew and caught and fished for. And I just grew up in a beautiful, beautiful garden at my grandmother's house. I know that she would be so, you know, so pleased to, you know, to hear how you've you've carried on her cooking and really used her and thought of her in all of your work. It's amazing to think about, isn't it? My new restaurant's named after her. Oh, great. Oh, you have a name already? Mm-hmm. Audrey. All right. Oh, cool. and, and and there's a bean name for her, too. Yeah, yeah, and that's delicious. It's been really amazing to watch that bean travel around. Um, I just gave some to the Icelandic Doomsday Seed Bank. Excellent. So Audrey Morgan's Hillbilly Wild Goose Bean is in the Icelandic Doomsday Seed Bank. That's pretty wild. 
Very well, well, that's that's a pretty important. That's uh, <laughs> being in the Icelandic seed bank. Because if the end of the world comes, if we destroy everything that we've known, uh, Audrey's bean will carry on. You know, will be there. How did how did it start to bring it forth? I, I know at first you were just using it, and now you've passed it around. So, it was always her favorite. It's called a, she called a wild goose, and it's very similar to. Uh, what some people call a turkey craw, um, except this one's purple and black and gray. It looks like someone spray painted. It's so beautiful. It's amazing. But she she was she was pretty obsessed with that one. And um, I ended up taking a pill bottle of it home after her funeral. There was a there's if you, if you went into her kitchen, you open one of the kitchen cabinets. There were all these pill bottles in there, but there was no medicine in them. It was all seeds. I don't know if wow. she was hiding them from people or what, but yeah. Wow. Uh, I read that you also opened the cabinet under the sink and took the mother of her vinegar yeah. out, and you've kept it going. Yeah, so I mean that was probably um, that was one of the that was one of the biggest food memories uh, that I can recall is is knowing that something that she'd had for forty years and been taking care of it for forty years that. I now have the opportunity to to share it with people, and it's it, it's spread all over the place from Sweden to to everywhere all over the world. Some of our listeners probably don't know what a mother is when in terms of vinegar. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So real vinegar is alive, and it's full of acetobacters, and you can take a real vinegar. And you can tell that it's real because it has this scary stuff floating around in it. And that's what's referred to as the mother. And you can take that you can take that um, live vinegar and then use it as a base, just like you would for a bread starter, to start vinegars for eternity. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about a, a yeast starter when you were yeah, talking exactly about that. Exactly like that. <laughs> and then you... Somehow you you got to uh, Charleston. I know it wasn't a direct leave Virginia, go to Charleston. What was the journey between Virginia? And you said you live close to Bristol? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, in a town called Abingdon. Were you familiar with the Big Bang, the Bristol connection? Of, oh, uh, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what a, so a music, neat. particularly in, with, the, with the new documentary out. Yeah, and, country music. and Pound isn't that far from the Carter family fold. Gotcha. Oh, really? Yeah, so... I mean, I grew up around amazing bluegrass, yeah. amazing, amazing bluegrass. That's routes right around where Ralph Stanley's from mm-hmm. as well. Stanley Brothers. So from there, somehow you, you made your way. I guess you went to a culinary school. Yeah, I wanted to go to cooking school. And uh, that was something that I decided to start pursuing at a very young age when I was probably 11 or 12 years old. I wanted to, I wanted to cook. And my grandma saw that and started to to nurture that idea uh, early on by buying me one of those infomercial hand hammered walks. Remember those? Yes, the hand hammered walks. Yes, <laughs> I still have it. I and actually I still... sold them in my. So I had a gourmet store oh, in amazing. the eighties. They're incredible. I still have mine. I still use mine. Your hand hammered walk. Yeah, I still. And I mean, I, I was twelve years old cooking Chinese food for my family all the time which is way back in the coal fields of Virginia. Yeah. Millions pretty... of hand-hammered walks were, are 
probably still out there. Mine's in mint condition. Yeah. Well, my favorite thing was I would try to sell the hand-hammered wok, and people would say, but I don't cook Chinese. And I would say, well, your wok doesn't know what you're cooking in it. (laughs) You know, you can cook scrambled eggs in it. I mean, you can cook anything in your hand-hammered wok. Yeah, I use it all the time at home still to cook all kinds of stuff, and it's not Chinese food. Okay, so so you worked in the garden, obviously, too, at your grandma's. Yeah, and, you know, the more I think about it and the more I kind of, if I close my eyes and picture my grandmother's garden, it was a farm. I mean, it was like at least three acres, maybe four acres, maybe Hmm. more. And it was all taken care of the old-fashioned way with horse-drawn plows. And so I grew up seeing that soil being turned the old-fashioned way and digging up potatoes and wiping them off and eating them right out of the ground and picking beans and corn and squash and and then helping preserve it. You have a a strong preservation or preserving of chapter, I mean, chapters in both of, you know, both of your books. And I can just envision like a a root cellar in a dark place where all these things are. And jars everywhere. My grandma's basement (laughs) to a really young kid was terrifying smelled weird there was like these 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 ceramic crocks of moldy liquids everywhere which now i know is deliciousness hiding in there and that yeah that smell i can still smell it and now that's what i crave and now that's what i'm trying to do did you um did you cure your own hams did your grandmother or they were local at least um my family early on did hams, and my grand, great-grandpa owned a grist mill, and my grandma worked at a grist mill. But by the time I was um, old enough to start messing around with stuff with that, like that, we stopped eating pork. So I didn't grow up eating pork, which is crazy, especially if you flip through this book. <laughs> I know, and I've seen, I have seen photographs and maybe television shows that have you butchering a hog. You oh, look that's quite what happens. That's what happens when you when you when you keep things from a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine not having pepperoni pizza or bacon as a kid. That's so your family was vegetarian? No, um, we we just we rarely ate meat. Just rarely we just ate had it. so many wonderful vegetables coming out of the ground and out of the basement, and that's just what we like to eat. Um, and you ate a lot of cornbread because every night it was. Really amazing to read uh, to read your recipes for cornbread. I could just feel you know that hot oil at four fifty in the oven and the sizzle Man. of it. You, it was a, a very romantic recipe for cornbread. In, in I'd say that's the thing that takes me back home the quickest. You know when those those nostalgic neuropathways get triggered and you actually f- start to feel something, mm. which is to be able to do that as a chef as well, to focus on that and say, all right, I mean, I want to cook food that makes someone feel that. That's, that's my goal as a chef. You're listening to a special edition of Deep South Dining with Chef Sean Brock. We'll have more of his conversation with Malcolm White and Carol Puckett after the break. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. 
On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. You're listening to a special edition of Deep South Dining, a conversation with Chef Sean Brock. He was recently in Jackson to talk about his latest cookbook, South, New Recipes and Explorations. One of the things that hit me emotionally in the book with the cornbread was when you made cornbread out of corn that you had actually grown your red corn that you had developed. Can you tell us about that corn? So I knew that my grandmother and my family had saved seeds their whole entire lives. And I was at... Um, Blackberry Farm listening to a talk between Glenn Roberts of Anson Mills and the master gardener there, John Quickendall. And they were talking about this corn varietal that was indigenous to that area that John, who was the master seedsman, had convinced himself that he'd never tasted it ever again. It was completely extinct. And Glenn had found it and DNA tested it. And it was the real thing. And to watch John taste it again, you know, thinking that he'd never get to experience that flavor, the flavor his, of his place it was so inspiring to me that that night I, I cornered him and I was like, I want to join the club. <laughs> I do I get in the on this club? club. <laughs> and um, they tried to talk me out of it, of course. They're like, it's, it's too much work. It's too crazy. You're too busy. You won't be able to do it properly. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and so I persisted and um, they ended up finding me, Glenn calls me and says, I have this corn that really needs some help and really needs some attention. There's one guy named Ted Tuning who's who's been growing it, and it's a red corn. And he said, I think it's going to be important for you because it's half low country and half Appalachian. And so I grew, I grew up in Appalachia and spent a huge chunk of my life in the low country. So I immediately felt connected to it and um, went to Ted's house and I had to spend the day with him and his family to convince him that I was worthy of getting that seed and taking care of it and not messing it up. And now I'm the same way. And I understand why you don't just give those seeds out to anybody who asks for them. And growing that corn for the, you know, as a seedsman for the first time was a very, very deep connection to food that I'd never experienced before. Feeling that responsibility. And I'll never forget the first time I made cornbread with it. It was the closest I'd tasted to my grandmother's cooking since mm-hmm. I was in her kitchen. You know, for me, that's uh, sassafras. My grandmother uh, loved sassafras tea, and one of my jobs as a child growing up in my grandmother's house was to go dig roots and yeah, find me them. me too, me too. And she would put it on a pot over a little heater that stayed lit all the time in her kitchen. And so there was this perpetual boiling of sassafras oh root, goodness. and she sipped it sassafras all day long. Potpourri. She she <laughs> sipped it, you know, and we wow. we learned as kids to drink this tea, and it, that that's the the sort of major memory of of my growing up with my yeah, grandmother. I, I just cooked the very first meal under the Audrey name, and we used we used that to um, to cook uh, some pork with the sarsaparilla. That's great. I wanted um, to talk to you a little bit about the peas and. Uh, beans recipe in here where you saute the onions and the garlic 
uh, and then add the peas to it. When I when I've always cooked peas and beans, I would add like a quarter of an onion and mm-hmm. maybe a couple of garlic heads and just throw them in there and let them cook while the peas. But this idea of yours of of, of making the base, sautéing mm-hmm. the vegetables in the beginning, I love that. Can you talk a little bit about that? So that recipe was an experiment that I wanted to put in this book to show how I approach cooking, period. And my approach is every time that I get a new delicious or amazing or super vibrant and fresh product in my hands, I use what I call the pie theory, P-I-E, products, ideas, execution. And so let's say it's peas. I have the peas. And then my rule is if I've seen it done before, I can't do it. And if I've done it before, I can't do it. And so I push myself to be creative and to think outside of my comfort zone. And most of the time I, I find I learn something new. Um, sometimes I just go back to the old way of doing it. But this was uh, an example of that where I just had um, someone standing beside me with a recorder and I stood there and just spoke every thought that came into my head as I was cooking those. And that day they were so vibrant and they were just, they came out of the, out of the shell. They were just an, an hour out of the ground uh, and just so, so vibrant. And I wanted to keep that vibrancy. So I wanted to cook them as fast as possible. And so I wanted to develop that base layer, that foundational layer as quickly as possible. And I cook, I cook peas like that pretty much all the time now. Hmm. Malcolm, sure. you going to try that this weekend? No, I am. Well, I'm, the only peas I've got are the ones frozen right now, but it's a great place to live, um, you know, when when peas and beans are, are coming in in the summertime. I mean, it's, it's like gold to me. Right. It really is. When I go to the market and I see the, the tumbler going and the peas coming out of it, it's, it's, it's like mining for gold. Yeah, I love that sound. The yeah, oh, absolutely. we got to keep these things alive when we... And we got to support farmers doing this stuff, and we got to we got to teach our kids. Well, there the are two things uh, in your book, in in both um, heritage and South, that I'm insanely jealous of ingredients that we don't get here. And one, you talk about greasy beans, and um, the other are ramps. And so you, it seems like you spend a lot of time ramp hunting during season. I would and, say that's my number one favorite yeah, ingredient of I all think, time. I think it is. Yeah, ramps my number one favorite but favorite ingredient. But would you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about ramps and how they how they grow and then what a greasy bean is? Yeah, so ramps it's it's like a cross between a, a leek and garlic, and it grows in the wild. And it there's nothing else in the world that tastes like it. And I remember as a kid, it had such a bad rap because the smell sticks around for a while. It sticks around in your hands. It sticks around in the air. And uh, certainly on your breath, <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's it's so strong. But that's what I love about it. Um, it's 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 one of those those flavors that just like haunts me sometimes. And the act of going to the woods looking for it, that's really 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 neat because you're scanning the hillside, and then you see them kind of sticking out. And then once you train your eye, uh, it's it's. Yeah, it's hunting. It's it's really amazing. Well, it sounded like a wonderful experience. I was uh, talking with our mutual friend Thomas Williams from Nashville a few years ago, and he 
and Alan Benton, your favorite bacon purveyor, mm-hmm. were taking a group ramping in the woods, and it, it sounded like uh, – just a, a great Sunday afternoon. I was so jealous. I, I thought we we need ramping parties here. Yeah, Alan took um, took me once, and uh, we took along David Chang from New York City. And we were speaking recently. And he said that's in his top five greatest memories of his whole life. And this is around <laughs> Madison, Tennessee. Well, we thought we were going to be sticking around Madisonville, Tennessee, and we ended up driving like two hours in North Carolina uh, towards this hill that was, I don't even know how we climbed it. It was, it was so vertical and we harvested the the ramps and then we, we parked by the Creek and washed the ramps in the Creek and uh, Sharon and, and Alan started breaking out cast iron pans and potatoes and ham and bacon. And it was really, I, mm. I I'll chase that memory and that those flavors for a long, long time. Oh, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> and 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 tell us about greasy beans. So greasy beans, I don't I don't know if it's just an Appalachian thing, but they are. I'm pretty sure it is are they? an Appalachian thing. Well, where I'm from, there's four or five hundred varieties of these things, and each each variety has a family name or a place. Um, attached to it, and they're all—they're all—they have these small, little, tiny intricacies to them that that make them uh, unique to those families or those places. And it's a full—it's a full-bodied um, uh, green bean that the the bean inside gets really, really large, and the outside is—it almost looks like plastic. It almost looks fake. It's so shiny and slick. Hence the name greasy bean. And when they cook down. They create so much savoriness and a, a new mommy. That that word never entered my grandmother's kitchen, but <laughs> that's what umami it is. Umami is that yeah. extra, it's, extra experience. That savoriness. Yeah. yeah, when you think about when your mouth waters, when you bite into a crazy ripe tomato, that's that's umami or soy sauce. Um, and so these these varietals, um, are, they're, they're going to be my main focus for for a while to to make them more available to people because we've got the idea of what a green bean is all wrong. The way I grew up eating these things, well, it'll be a huge inspiration for my entire career. And I can't wait for more people to taste them, for more people to experience them. They do really well um, canned because they're so meaty in there. And you, you put some salt water in and you pressure can them. And then you throw that, once it's time to eat them, put that in the pot with some sort of flavoring of some sort of fat or pork, and you just cook the liquid totally out, and it concentrates. And, man, those things are amazing. And another tradition we do with them is we string them, and then we take a needle and thread and thread that back through them just like you would popcorn on the Christmas tree, and you hang that above the fire, and they they shrivel up, and um, they're called leather breeches or shuck beans or shucky beans. And when those cook... They taste like pot roast. Wow. I mean, it's a meat <laughs> substitute. It does the same thing to your brain and to your soul that a slow-braised pot roast does. During your career, you started in a restaurant kitchen, the first restaurant kitchen in Abington, and you used a term that I really love that 
that describes so many people who are so attracted to the craziness of the kitchen. You said that the kitchen to you was like a pirate ship. <laughs> I mean, this place, uh, luckily I have some photos. I wish I had some videos <laughs> because it was it was one of the wildest things I'd ever seen because my image of being a chef was from watching Julia Child and Jacques Pepin and Yan Ken Cook and great chefs on the Discovery Channel. And then I walked into this place where heavy metal is blasting, people are smoking cigarettes, and everyone has tattoos, and it was just the wildest, craziest thing I'd ever seen. But the food going out was this, like, this beautiful, delicate, it just it made no sense to me. <laughs> and you loved it. It was love at first sight. Oh, I haven't looked back since. Yeah, I, I, would, I started washing dishes there before I started cooking, and I would just study every move. I'd, I couldn't believe how quick these cooks were moving and with the accuracy and and tickets just piling up and music just blasting yeah it was amazing so the first part of your career or well the middle part of your career you really spent uh, reintroducing or or teaching us again about low country cuisine and you seem to be applying that passion now to Appalachian, but you really transformed the way people think about low country cuisine. And oh wow, yeah, talk about talk about the rices well, imagine, and what you found. Imagine, imagine growing up on greasy beans and catfish, and then going to a place where there's there's Hop and John and grouper and blue crabs and these crazy amazing shrimp I'd never tasted any of those things before and I was a teenager when I when I first got to Charleston to go to culinary school and I just it was such a world away from how I grew up I became so fascinated and then I think the the history geek in me was really 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 attracted to uh, all the things that had been documented about the cooking of that era and that that didn't exist in, in in Appalachia. Still really doesn't because it's such a word of mouth cuisine and the cooks there. And Appalachia takes such pride in not measuring and not using recipes and not writing anything down. And so that's also why I think it's really important for me to spend the rest of my life focusing on gathering as much of that um, word of mouth uh, narrative as possible to hang on to it and to to help um, keep it alive. And, man, what an exciting future ahead of me. Yeah, and I, I was interested that you've actually spent time in West Africa in pursuit of the roots of low country cuisine. Yeah, I think that was, that was one of the – that'll be one of the biggest moments of, of my career, certainly, was the, the first time going to West Africa – and seeing dishes that I only knew as southern dishes, like gumbo or jambalaya, and seeing cooking them in um, people's homes with multiple generations. Uh, I, I made gumbo with four generations one day in someone's home, and that is just, I'll never forget that for the, for the rest of my life. And every time I make gumbo now or even say the word gumbo, that's what comes to mind, and I think that's the power of that, that food has is 
it can teach us so much about um, other people and it can teach us so much about other cultures and it can teach us so much um, about each other just just fascinating stuff you're listening to a special edition of deep south dining a conversation with sean brock malcolm white and carol puckett will have even more after the break stay tuned Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. You're listening to a special edition of Deep South Dining, a conversation with Chef Sean Brock. He was recently in Jackson to talk about his latest cookbook, South, New Recipes and Explorations. Well, let's uh, let's get you from Charleston uh, to Nashville. Uh, I know you opened a restaurant in Charleston, or you were the chef at a restaurant called Husk. That's where I first met you. There would be no way you could remember that. Uh, we were lunching there one day with uh with sarah mel evans and y'all, ah, y'all are friends and that's course. part of the reason you're in jackson as we speak yeah. because of the evans family yeah. and sarah mel brought me in and we one we had lunch and dad johnny evans at lemuria bookstore yeah so how cool is that that's yeah. amazing yeah she was one of the one of the first people i met in the in the restaurant industry in charleston and i she's just i never met anybody that kind before and we still stay in touch to this very day. Um, yeah, wow, what an amazing memory! And and so you're you're here in Jackson to promote your new book, South, and you'll be doing an event at um, Cathead, which is uh, Sarah Mel's brother yeah, Austin's distillery. I remember distillery. when they were <laughs> brainstorming that, and and I've just it's been amazing to watch that idea grow. Yeah, so neat, like traveling around and seeing their products on shelves. You know. Anything is possible, right? Even any, in any idea, even any vodka idea. in Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really inspiring. Yeah, and what's so great for us is that you know John Evans has long owned the bookstore Lemuria, which is a cultural gathering place for our state and our community, and it's a significant literary place. And he raised these two kids, Austin and Sarah Mel. And Austin has come home opened up this distillery. He's very focused on local story, on culture and sense of place. And Sarah Mel, who's still in Charleston, comes home all the time. And this event that you are the centerpiece of, uh, to me, is really sort of an explanation point of the joy and love of the Evans family, where John is there as the bookseller and Sarah Mel is there as, as your friend. And and Austin is there as the proprietor, and it's so a really neat. wonderful uh, uh, occasion for our community and our state. So we're so glad you're here. Glad to be here. I just had um, two smokes and two ears at Big Apple. And All right, before oh, I got here. <laughs> you know what? Gino, Gino is on our show a lot. What a great guy. And, and I was reading your ear yeah. recipe in here, and I was wondering. I'm so glad you said that. I was wondering how you would compare that. You do a crispy ear, and Gino does more of a boiled ear. I'd never thought once about ever cooking or eating a pig ear. 
uh, until I heard about his place and started studying it and watching the documentaries and um, I had to try it for myself and <laughs> that became one of the more popular things when we opened Husk and um, yeah I mean walking to the airport and people screaming pig ears at you is kind of crazy <laughs> I never thought I'd be the pig ear guy <laughs> Well, if, I yeah, remember, if they were yelling wax beans, <laughs> yeah, it would have made more sense. Yeah, crazy beans. <laughs> but husk is uh, is around the idea of all food from below the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. Was, that was your concept? Or yeah, you? I wanted to create a place that could be a restaurant where people who really may not understand Southern food or maybe it's their first time to the South taste what I I experienced as a kid and that's cooking with what's coming out of the ground and cooking it um, with the intent of making someone feel something and so I knew that in order to create a, a true southern restaurant we couldn't use balsamic vinegar and we couldn't use ingredients outside of of the south and um that's a crazy idea. Once it is a you, crazy idea and a challenge. Well, I mean, once you start trying to figure out where you're going to get your salt from and your sugar and your flour and all the things and that you take olive. for granted, and yes, and all those things. But what it did is it pushed me to to figure out how to how to do those things myself and and to find people who would, would help me do that and that helped me grow as a cook quickly. So you've got a new restaurant concept uh, that you're in the middle of. Uh, working on that will be in East Nashville, as I understand it. Yeah, Nashville is my home now. And I worked in Nashville from 2003 to 2006. I was in my 20s, and I was the chef at the the Hermitage Hotel, this beautiful historic inn there. And then I went to Charleston in 2006 to take over McCready's and then Husk open in 2010. And then 2013, we decided to open a Husk outside of Charleston. Nashville was my first choice because I, I just loved um, the food from there, from the farmers and the flavors of, of the vegetables and fruits and apples and things were were just amazing. And so 2013, we opened a Husk in Nashville. And in 2014, I, s- I hadn't been around ice very much, and I slipped uh, one winter and broke my kneecap uh, right outside the restaurant in Nashville. And I just kind of stayed. I just slowly started moving my stuff to Nashville and and the community there. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it anywhere in the world. Um, it's this moment in Nashville. It's so exciting to be a part of a city that is so full of creative energy and so full of a community that's supporting each other and encouraging each other to take chances and and, and dream big. And watching all those things happen and unfold is, has been really inspiring. And so, and Nashville loved you as a young I was, as a young cook. I was doing crazy stuff when when I was I was doing thirty course first, tasting yeah, menus when I when I first heard this. I said, God, this is crazy young guy <laughs> at the Hermitage, but I really put the Hermitage on the map from a food perspective. Well, I had no business running at that <laughs> hotel's restaurant at that age, but I. I I did my best, and that was an amazing memory. My uh, little brother used to deliver your meats at the Nashville Husk from Whoa. Bear Creek. What? A guy named Brad White. He, amazing. He used to be your delivery Holy boy. Cow. And I, I made a few runs with him to come by there and drop off your meats. That's the best. Bear Creek's the best. Hands down, the absolute best. 
There's nothing like yes, it. Yes, we get Bear Creek pork chops here. You Thomas do. Williams delivers <laughs> delivers them. He's a pork mule, and we actually have a pork chop club. <laughs> Amazing. So even we We're in all Mississippi from the same cloth. That's right. Um, one of the things you you said is, I nearly kill myself trying to save Southern food. <laughs> And can you talk a little bit about that or, or you know, where you are right now? Yeah. You, you look healthy and happy and calm. <laughs> Even after 19 straight book tour events? Yeah. You don't you look, look frazzled yeah, at all. You don't look, you don't look frazzled. <laughs> well, I, I spent the early part of my life um, being obsessed with what I saw in the kitchen when I, when I was a teenager, that fast-paced chaos. Um, I, I, I became a workaholic, and I became addicted to that. And, you know, for the longest time, I was rewarded for it. And so why stop until your body says, you got to stop? And um, one day I woke up and had double vision, and my immune system had started attacking itself. And um, for a year and a half, I went undiagnosed and had uh, six surgeries on my eyes, trying, no one could figure out what was wrong with me. Um, having double vision is one of the most terrifying things because you can't drive. You can't, you, you definitely don't want to be using a chef's knife (laughs) 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 or handling hot pans full of grease. And so, um, it was the universe telling me that it was time to slow down and take better care of myself. And now having a son, that's my main priority is, is slowing down and making sure that I do everything I can to, to remain happy and healthy so that I can take better care of my family. And the new restaurant will be inspired by that. And it's a restaurant designed um, around this idea that the restaurant industry is too stressful. And it doesn't have to be. And I'm not going to let it be anymore. And I refuse to go back to that that chaos um, that that ended up giving me myasthenia gravis, which I'll have for the rest of my life. So I'll have to behave for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, and so the restaurant will be centered around this idea that our team will be the priority. And I believe it goes in line with the theory that um, when you're on the airplane, you put the mask on yourself first and tighten it before assisting others. Because when I first heard that, I was like, my mom would smack me if I did if I helped myself before I helped someone else. Right. You know, we're just not taught to think that way. But it makes so much sense now. And so the restaurant will be centered around the wellness of the staff, first and foremost. And I think that will create better food and I think that will create better hospitality. And my my hope is that the people who work there, when they go off to to do their own thing, they can take a lot of the the tools that they gained and ideas and theories um, from Audrey and, and put them into their worlds. Well, as a recovering alcoholic and the owner of a chaotic bar and restaurant, I, I'm fascinated <laughs> by this new concept of, of having an entire floor of this new restaurant dedicated to mindfulness and wellness. Yeah. And it, I'm just, and uh, the work you've done to create. Uh, signature beverages that are alcohol free non alcoholic yeah. drinks that you you seem to be focused on here this both of the, all those concepts are fascinating to me. Can you talk a little bit about it well 
Um, I, I want to create. A, a, I don't want to use the word compound because <laughs> that, that reminds <laughs> you, you could, of a cult. You could go to jail for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, I'm, I, I have a lot of room in this building that I found, and uh, so the top floor, uh, over half of the top floor, is just for the team, and uh, we're building all kinds of rooms and different learning centers. And there's one room about the size of the room that we're in that's completely soundproof, like this one. And um, it will be full of things that help regulate your nervous system, things that I've picked up along the way over the past few years in recovery and studying psychology and studying the brain and the nervous system. And it's it's amazing. There's so many things out there that all of us could be using every day that could could help us stay more present in the prefrontal cortex part of our brain and not in that fight or flight part of our brain when our nervous system just gets shot. And that's one of the reasons I'm so happy and healthy these days is, is I know my nervous system now and I know how to, and I know that I'm the master of my nervous system and it's not the master of me. And I look forward to teaching that, um, to my team. You've become acquainted with your own seeds. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you're turning the pirate ship into a sailboat. Yes. The kitchen. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it really yeah. does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the, the new book is on the New York Times bestseller list. It's Sean Brock South, Essential Recipes and New Explorations. And I'm just getting to know it and exploring it. But I also love the first book, Heritage. And, Thank you. Um, I hope listeners out there will discover these two. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we can talk about about your visit here, you know, with the Evans family and with John Currents is is supporting books and bookstores and, and restaurant, local cultural uh, establishments. And Man, community, community. It's community. all about community, isn't it? That's but, the key. I mean, if if we can find a community that we feel like we belong to or where we fit in, and if we can make a contribution to that, that's the only worth success we'll ever need as human beings. And you write, or at least you've said that you hope that you have that you will be creating a restaurant that you can spend the rest of your career in. I I thought that for a restaurant tour, that's quite a statement. <laughs> this is the one. This is the one. I want to serve my last meal in. You're listening to a special edition of Deep South Dining with Chef Sean Brock. We'll have more of his conversation with Malcolm White and Carol Puckett after the break. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me on the show each week are healthcare professionals who add their expertise to the discussion. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Deep South Dining. Malcolm White and Carol Puckett are talking with Chef Sean Brock about his latest cookbook, South, Essential Recipes and New Explorations. Let's talk a little bit about home cooks. So much of Southern cooking has come out of the home, and I'm sure a lot of people that are going to buy this book are home cooks. 
So do you have any advice or anything you'd like to say about those who are plowing the kitchens, not in the restaurant, but at home? So my, my best advice is cook often and embrace failure. <laughs> I mean, that's... We can needlepoint that. Yeah. I mean, I, I look forward to failure um, because that's where my greatest discoveries have been. And it's easy to get frustrated. And when you do get really, really frustrated, that's fine. Just come to my restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Food shouldn't make you angry. When it does, it's time to go. Well, who is the home cook in your house? Uh, Currently, does your wife cook? So, Adi, my wife, um, she only knows how to make one thing. And that's called a reservation. Oh. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, uh, what a she, smart woman! She, she yeah, she has no desire. She's not allowed to use the stove. Actually, um, you should have seen us Facetiming the other day trying to teach her how to turn the oven on. It wasn't so I was like, you know what? Just order something. <laughs> um, what kind of stove is this? That it's is a that complicated. <laughs> it's a gas stove. Well, she's trying to turn the broiler on, which is okay. terrifying for All someone right. who's not allowed to touch the stove. <laughs> <laughs> So I cook so many meals at home. I really, really, really love cooking at home. And I cook at home the same way that I cook in restaurants and all that's in this book. And one of the things I really wanted to achieve with this book was to share these uh, foundational recipes that I've been working on for 15, 20 years so that you don't have to worry about all that trial and error so that you can take these recipes just like I do when I open a restaurant and then – be creative with them and allow it allows you the room and the space to to not worry about the technical aspects of things and to to be able to to branch out and try and you know have the courage to try new things and i like your suggestions of goes good with this you know pair it with this try this recipe it's on the another page i I love that part of yeah i didn't want it to be as much of a book filled with a bunch of composed dishes because I, I don't really cook that way. I have components, mm. and they, they are interchangeable every single day. So when I'm writing a menu, it starts with a list of components and a list of recipes, and then I just kind of piece them together. It's never like, oh, I want to create this dish, and then I go find the components. It's the opposite. Yeah, and you say go shopping first. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And then build your meal from what Products, you've been able ideas, to uh, purchase. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to try. <laughs> One of the things as a home cook I really liked is you you said if you don't have an ingredient or if you don't like it, just don't use it. It was like having permission to. Yeah, and, and I, I catch myself doing that a lot. So if, if you don't have everything you need for a recipe, you still got to make it because right. there's there's so much more to it. And if you just – also I think – we try to find as many excuses as possible to not do difficult right. things. Right. So it's like, you know, I'm out of nutmeg, so I don't I'm I, out of yeah. coriander. <laughs> There's no, no way I can cook I that dish. Some of the oh, we don't have ramps down yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. So just I guess cook a, it. a good old green onion is going to have to do. Yeah, I mean, a recipe is just an idea. It's nothing written in stone. I don't want it to be written in right. stone. I don't want it to be this concrete thing that never changes. The The beauty of it is how it evolves and and the creations that come out of out of those those brainstorming sessions. Another map in the book that I'm fond of is the Country Ham Road map. Uh, I married a woman from Richmond, Virginia, and her father is uh, is fascinated by and is a historian of the Virginia ham. 
course, it's because he lives in Virginia, but it's a whole region of, of, of hams that, that you grew up in this neighborhood. Can you talk a little bit about the map and the, the country ham? Well, um, there's a an illustration of a chunk of the South where I chose nine of my favorite hams. And I thought it would be fun to create a road map. I mean, what a road trip this this, this <laughs> Wow. Would be, you know, tasting these hams along the way. But one of the things I love about this is on the, on the page um, beside it, it breaks down each place's traditions and what their what is in their cures and what wood they use and um, how long they age it and where they are and what the history of that place is and we can learn a lot about a region through through country ham and, and through and through barbecue um, country ham I think is like the jewel in the crown for, for southern southern food it's the one thing I wish I could carry with me at all times when somebody asks me what southern food is i would just give them that just a small sliver can we talk about another southern tradition uh that being the waffle house that (laughs) you took anthony bourdain to (laughs) well how that you know you know he he had such an impact on on my career and was such a big supporter and um i saw him uh four or five months before we film the charleston episode and i was like what are we going to do in Charleston when you come film me? He's like, what? You're writing that episode. It's like, no, what? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I have, he's like, you can write the whole thing. It's just, we have to go to the Waffle House. I've never been. <laughs> like, okay, but we have to do it. We have to do it the, the correct way. <laughs> and so we, um, we went to my favorite dive bar where I hung out with Sarah Mel in Austin a lot. <laughs> and um, it was amazing to show him that, that side of, of Charleston because that, that bar that dive bar is where all the restaurant people hang out mm-hmm. at. And um, to, to watch him experience the Waffle House was really, it was a highlight. And exactly what time would that have been? Uh, it might have been 2.30 or 3, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, let's just say I'm glad that there were cameras there because I don't remember a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> this was in your previous life. When can you get them smashed, hashed? You know what? Someone brought Smothered, me a, covered, yes, chunked. Someone uh, brought me smashed. a T-shirt on the book tour where they, they took my hash brown order and made a T-shirt. All me. right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Are they generally available, or was it a, an exclusive I think T-shirt? It's, I think it's exclusive. I might have to auction a couple of them. Well, did you and uh, Anthony Bourdain play the jukebox at the Waffle House? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's the first thing you got to do while you're waiting for your food. I know. It's, <laughs> they just don't make a jukebox like that anymore. Could I get you to talk just a little bit about your concept of the South and the regions and the way you view the American South and its its cuisine? I think that's fascinating and important for our listeners to hear. Well, on the, in the book, it's, it's on page 11. I have it memorized now. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, it's a map of the South, or at least the beginnings of a map of the South. The more I, I think about Southern food, the more I listen, and the more I research, the more I realize that it's even bigger than what's on that page. And it's ever-evolving. But it's pictured beside an illustration of Western Europe. And it's crazy to look at that side by side. And looking at those two maps side by side really helped me solidify this idea that there are so many cuisines that haven't even been named or discovered in the South. And 
I've, I've been referring to them as micro-cuisines or micro-regions. And that's based on this theory that cuisine is shaped from three things, uh, people, place, products. And that has helped me truly understand the insane diversity uh, of the American South. And I think most importantly, what I've taken away from this book tour, this being the last stop, is the future of Southern food is so exciting. I mean, we have so many traditions that haven't been born yet. I mean, think about how young we are. 2026 will be 250 years old as a country. That's nothing. Paris is 2,000 years old. Yeah. And we there are a lot of traditions that we can start ourselves, and we can do that. We we have the ability to do that. How old was Modena when they decided to start making the best balsamic vinegar? You know, I mean, there's so many undiscovered traditions out there and undiscovered cuisines. And if you look at that formula of people, places, and products – and you apply it to the future, if that's what a place tastes like, those three things determine what a place tastes like while the whole world just opens up and the possibilities are unlimited. The book is The South, and the author is Sean Brock. Sean is a chef and a food historian and a maker of love. (laughs) And uh, he is also in the restaurant business, and he's been our guest today, and we are certainly grateful for you stopping by and we wish you nothing but the best with your new venture uh, and this book uh, as it uh, settles into the ethos of the American South and to really to book buyers all around the world because it is very global in context. Thank you for coming by and uh, appreciate hope to have y'all. you on again sometime yeah, soon. Thank you. thank you, Carol. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.